Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. How can Conan possibly prevail against the Wizards of the Black Circle? Robert E. Howard Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for $8 off any digital audiobook download. It's like getting a free book every month, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. There are other ways to support the podcast, through purchasing our app, our merchandise, or telling your friends about us. Links can be found in the notes to today's episode. And if you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. That's still a thing. And be sure to rate and review us at Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And thank you, Spotify, for featuring us again on your curated Mind Massage playlist. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is coming along nicely and I'll be recording another episode on Saturday. I'd like to get it done by the end of September, so please, make sure your supporter status is up to date so you don't miss out on this amazing production. Once it's done, I'll be sending the entire 20-hour-long audiobook to all current supporters. And now our personal moment for the week. Uh, We love Bob's Burgers, the show. And we got the cookbook. Somebody made a cookbook and tested all of the burger recipes so that they're all accurate with the, with the show, with the burgers of the day that he does. Our favorite is the Blue Bayou Burger. We've made this a couple times. It has Swiss chard, bacon, blue cheese, and a wine reduction. It's pretty tasty. One thing that Scylla and I really, really love to do is to cook together. That is just one of our favorite, favorite things is to get together in the evening and cook food for our kids. All three of our kids are living with us still. And we, uh, we, just, we just love laughing and talking. Scylla is the funniest person I've ever met. She's just a hoot to be around. And we just have a lot of fun cooking for our, for our kids. And then we sit down and have a good dinner. We don't do it every single night, but uh, we do it quite frequently. And it's just one of our favorite things to do. We have a good time. So that's our personal moment for the week. Thank you for listening. And now, The People of the Black Circle, Part 3 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. Chapter 7. On to Yimsha. As mists vanish before a strong wind, 
the cobwebs vanished from Conan's brain. With a searing curse, he leapt into the saddle and the stallion reared, neighing beneath him. He glared up the slopes, hesitated, and then turned down the trail in the direction he had been going when halted by Kemza's trickery. But now he did not ride at a measured gait. He shook loose the reins and the stallion went like a thunderbolt, as if frantic to loose hysteria in violent physical exertion. Across the ledge and around the crag and down the narrow trail threading the great steep, they plunged at breakneck speed. The path followed a fold of rock, winding interminably down from tier to tier of striated escarpment. And once, far below, Conan got a glimpse of the ruin that had fallen, a mighty pile of broken stone and boulders at the foot of a gigantic cliff. The valley floor was still far below him when he reached a long and lofty ridge that led out from the slope like a natural causeway. Out upon this he rode, with an almost sheer drop on either hand, he could trace ahead of him the trail and made a great horseshoe back into the riverbed at his left hand. He cursed the necessity of traversing those miles, but it was the only way. To try to descend to the lower lap of the trail here would be to attempt the impossible. Only a bird could get to the riverbed with a whole neck. So he urged on the wearying stallion until a clink of hoofs reached his ears, welling up from below. Pulling up short and reining to the lip of the cliff, he stared down into the dry riverbed that wound along the foot of the ridge. Along that gorge rode a motley throng, bearded men on half-wild horses, five hundred strong, bristling with weapons. And Conan shouted suddenly, leaning over the edge of the cliff, three hundred feet above them. At his shout they reined back, and five hundred bearded faces were tilted up towards him. A deep, clamorous roar filled the canyon. Conan did not waste words. I was riding for gore, he roared. I had not hoped to meet you dogs on the trail. Follow me as fast as your nags can push. I'm going to Yimsha and... Traitor! The howl was like a dash of ice water in his face. What? He glared down at them, jolted speechless. He saw wild eyes blazing up at him. Faces contorted with fury, fists brandishing blades. Traitor! They roared back wholeheartedly. Where are the seven chiefs held captive in Peshkuri? Why, in the governor's prison, I suppose, he answered. A bloodthirsty yell from a hundred throats answered him, with such a waving of weapons and a clamor that he could not understand what they were saying. He beat down the din with a bull-like roar and bellowed, what devil's play is this? Let one of you speak, so I can understand what you mean. A gaunt old chief elected himself to this position, shook his tulwar at Conan as a preamble, and shouted accusingly, You would not let us go raiding Peshkuri to rescue our brothers! No, you fools! roared the exasperated Cimmerian. Even if you'd breached the wall, which is unlikely— They'd have hanged the prisoners before you could reach them. And you went alone to traffic with the governor, yelled the Afghuli, working himself into a frothing frenzy. Well, where are the seven chiefs? howled the old chief, making his tulwar into a glimmering wheel of steel about his head. Where are they? Dead! What? 
Conan nearly fell off his horse in his surprise. I dead! Five hundred bloodthirsty voices assured him. The old chief brandished his arms and got the floor again. They were not hanged, he screeched. The Wazuli in another cell saw them die. The governor sent a wizard to slay them by craft. That must be a lie, said Conan. The governor would not dare. Last night I talked with him. The admission was unfortunate. A yell of hate and accusation split the skies. Hi, you went to him alone to betray us. It is no lie. The Wazuli escaped through the doors the wizard burst in his entry and told the tale to our scouts, whom he met in Zaibar. They had been sent forth to search for you when you did not return. When they heard the Wazuli's tale, they returned with all haste to Gore, and we saddled our steeds and girt our swords. And what do you fools mean to do? demanded the Sumerian. To avenge our brothers, they howled. Death to the Shatrias! Slay him, brothers! He is a traitor! Arrows began to rattle around him. Conan rose in his stirrups, striving to make himself heard above the tumult. And then, with a roar of mingled rage, defiance, and disgust, he wheeled and galloped back up the trail. Behind him and below him, the Afghulis came pelting, mouthing their rage, too furious even to remember that the only way they could reach the height whereon he rode was to traverse the riverbed in the other direction, make the broad bend and follow the twisting trail up over the ridge. When they did remember this and turn back, their repudiated chief had almost reached the point where the ridge joined the escarpment. At the cliff, he did not take the trail by which he had descended, but turned off on another, a mere trace along a rock fault, where the stallion scrambled for footing. He had not ridden far when the stallion snorted and shied back from something lying in the trail. Conan stared down on the travesty of a man, a broken, shredded, bloody heap that gibbered and gnashed splintered teeth. Impelled by some obscure reason, Conan dismounted and stood looking down at the ghastly shape, knowing that he was witness of a thing miraculous and opposed to nature. The Raksha lifted his gory head, and his strange eyes, glazed with agony and approaching death, rested on Conan with recognition. Where are they? It was a racking croak, not even remotely resembling a human voice. Gone back to their damnable castle on Yimsha, grunted Conan. They took the Devi with them. I will go, muttered the man. I will follow them. They killed Gitara. I will kill them, the Acolytes, the four of the Black Circle, the Master himself. Kill, kill them all. He strove to drag his mutilated form along the rock, but not even his indomitable will could animate that gory mass longer, where the splintered bones hung together only by torn tissue and ruptured fiber. Follow them, raved Kemsa, drooling a bloody slaver. Follow. I'm going to, growled Conan. I want to fetch my Afghulis, but they've turned on me. I'm going on to Yimsha alone. I'll have the Devi back if I have to tear down that damned mountain with my bare hands. 
I didn't think the governor would dare kill my headman when I had the devy, but it seems he did. I'll have his head for that. She's no use to me now as a hostage, but... The curse of Giesel on them, gasped Kemsa. Go. I am dying. Wait. Take my girdle. He tried to fumble with a mangled hand at his tatters, and Conan, understanding what he sought to convey, bent and drew from about his gory waist a girdle of curious aspect. Follow the golden vein through the abyss, muttered Kemsa. Where the girdle? I had it from a Stygian priest. It will aid you, though it failed me at last. Break the crystal globe with the four golden pomegranates. Beware of the master's transmutations. I am going to Gitara. She is waiting for me in hell. Hey, Yas Gelos, And so he died. Conan stared down at the girdle. The hair of which it was woven was not horsehair. He was convinced that it was woven of the thick black tresses of a woman. Set in the thick mesh were tiny jewels, made as he had never seen before. The buckle was strangely made, in the form of a golden serpent head, flat, wedge-shaped and scaled with curious art. A strong shudder shook Conan as he handled it, and he turned as though to cast it over the precipice. Then he hesitated, and finally buckled it about his waist, under the Bakerot girdle. Then he mounted and pushed on. The sun had sunk behind the crags. He climbed the trail in the vast shadow of the cliffs that was thrown out like a dark blue mantle over valleys and ridges far below. He was not far from the crest, when edging around the shoulder of a jutting crag, he heard the clink of shod hoofs ahead of him. He did not turn back. Indeed, so narrow was the path that the stallion could not have wheeled his great body upon it. He rounded the jut of the rock and came upon a portion of the path that broadened somewhat. A chorus of threatening yells broke on his ear, but his stallion pinned a terrified horse hard against the rock, and Conan caught the arm of the rider in an iron grip, checking the lifted sword in mid-air. Kerim Shah, muttered Conan, red glints smoldering luridly in his eyes. The Turanian did not struggle. They set their horses almost breast to breast, Conan's fingers locking the other's sword arm. Behind Kerim Shah filed a group of lean Iraksai on gaunt horses. They glared like wolves, fingering bows and knives, but rendered uncertain because of the narrowness of the path and the perilous proximity of the abyss that yawned beneath them. Where is the Devi? demanded Kerim Shah. What's it to you, you Hyrcanian spy? snarled Conan. I know you have her, answered Kerim Shah. I was on my way northward with some tribesmen when we were ambushed by enemies in Shaliza Pass. Many of my men were slain, and the rest of us hurried through the hills like jackals. When we had beaten off our pursuers, we turned westward, toward Amir Yehun Pass, and this morning we came upon the Wazuli, wandering through the hills. He was quite mad, but I learned much from his incoherent gibberings before he died. I learned 
that he was the sole survivor of a band which followed a chief of the Afghulis and a captive Shatria woman into a gorge behind Kurum village. He babbled much of a man in a green turban, whom the Afghu rode down, but who, when attacked by the Wazulis who pursued, smote them with a nameless doom that wiped them out as a gust of wind-driven fire wipes out a cluster of locusts. How that one man escaped I do not know, nor did he. But I knew from his maunderings that Conan of Gore had been in Kurum with his royal captive. And as we made our way through the hills, we overtook a naked Galzai girl bearing a gourd of water, who told us a tale of having been stripped and ravished by a giant foreigner in the garb of an Afghuli chief, who, she said, gave her garments to a Vendian woman who accompanied him. She said you rode westward. Kerem Shah did not consider it necessary to explain that he had been on his way to keep his rendezvous with the expected troops from Secunderam when he found his way barred by hostile tribesmen. The road to Gurashah Valley through Shaliza Pass was longer than the road that wound through Amir Yuhin Pass, but the latter traversed part of the Afghuli country, which Kerem Shah had been anxious to avoid until he came with an army. Barred from the Shaliza Road, however, he had turned to the forbidden route, until news that Conan had not yet reached Afghulistan with his captive had caused him to turn southward and push on recklessly in the hope of overtaking the Sumerian in the hills. So you had better tell me where the Devi is, suggested Kerem Shah. We outnumber you. Let one of your dogs knock a shaft, and I'll throw you over the cliff, Conan promised. It wouldn't do you any good to kill me anyhow. Five hundred Afghulis are on my trail, and if they find you've cheated them, they'll flay you alive. Anyway, I haven't got the Devi. She's in the hands of the Black Seers of Yimsha. Tarim, swore Kerem Shah softly, shaken out of his poise for the first time. Kemsa? Kemsa's dead, grunted Conan. His master sent him to hell on a landslide. And now get out of my way. I'd be glad to kill you if I had the time. But I'm on my way to Yimsha. I'll go with you, said the Turanian abruptly. Conan laughed at him. Do you think I'd trust you, you Hyrcanian dog? I don't ask you to, returned Kerem Shah. We both want the Devi. You know my reason. King Yezdegir desires to add her kingdom to his empire, and herself in his seraglio. And I knew you, in the days when you were a hetman of the Kozak steppes. So I know your ambition is wholesale plunder. You want to loot Vendia, and to twist out a huge ransom for Yasmina. Well, let us for the time being, without any illusion about each other, unite our forces, and try to rescue the Devi from the seers. If we succeed and live, we can fight it out to see who keeps her. Conan narrowly scrutinized the other for a moment, and then nodded, releasing the Turanian's arm. Agreed. What about your men? Keremshah turned to the silent Iraksai and spoke briefly. This chief and I are going to Yimsha to fight the wizards. Will you go with us? 
or stay here to be flayed by the Afghulis who are following this man. They looked at him with eyes grimly fatalistic. They were doomed and they knew it, had known it, ever since the singing arrows of the ambushed Dagozai had driven them back from the pass of Shaliza. The men of the Lower Zaibar had too many reeking blood feuds among the crag dwellers. They were too small a band to fight their way back through the hills to the villages of the border, without the guidance of the crafty Turanian. They counted themselves as dead already, so they made the reply that only dead men would make. We will go with thee and die on Yimsha. Then in Krom's name let us be gone, grunted Conan, fidgeting with impatience as he started into the blue gulfs of the deepening twilight. My wolves were hours behind me, but we've lost a devilish lot of time. Kerem Shah backed his steed from between the black stallion and the cliff, sheathed his sword, and cautiously turned the horse. Presently the band was filing up the path as swiftly as they dared. They came out upon the crest nearly a mile east of the spot where Kemsa had halted the Sumerian and the Devi. The path they had traversed was a perilous one, even for hillmen, and for that reason Conan had avoided it that day when carrying Yasmina, though Kerem Shah, following him, had taken it, supposing the Sumerian had done likewise. Even Conan sighed with relief when the horses scrambled up over the last rim. They moved like phantom riders through an enchanted realm of shadows. The soft creak of leather, the clink of steel marked their passing. Then again, the dark mountain slopes lay naked and silent in the starlight. Chapter 8 Yasmina Knows Stark Terror Yasmina had time but for one scream when she felt herself enveloped in that crimson whirl and torn from her protector with appalling force. She screamed once, and then she had no breath to scream. She was blinded, deafened, rendered mute and eventually senseless by the terrific rushing of the air about her. There was a dazed consciousness of dizzy height and numbing speed a confused impression of natural sensations gone mad, and then vertigo and oblivion. A vestige of these sensations clung to her as she recovered consciousness. So she cried out and clutched wildly as though to stay a headlong and involuntary flight. Her fingers closed on soft fabric, and a relieving sense of stability pervaded her. She took cognizance of her surroundings, she was lying on a dais, covered with black velvet. This dais stood in a great, dim room, whose red walls were hung with dusky tapestries, across which crawled dragons, reproduced with repellent realism. Floating shadows merely hinted at the lofty ceiling, and gloom that lent itself to illusion lurked in the corners. There seemed to be neither windows nor doors in the walls, or else they were concealed by the nighted tapestries. Where the dim light came from, Yasmina could not determine. The great room was a realm of mysteries, or shadows, and shadowy shapes, in which she could have sworn to observe movement, yet which invaded her mind with a dim and formless terror. But her gaze fixed itself on a tangible object. 
On another, smaller dais of jet, a few feet away, a man sat, cross-legged, gazing contemplatively at her. His long black velvet robe, embroidered with gold thread, fell loosely about him, masking his figure. His hands were folded in his sleeves. There was a velvet cap upon his head. His face was calm, placid, not unhandsome, his eyes lambent and slightly oblique. He did not move a muscle as he sat regarding her, nor did his expression alter when he saw she was conscious. Yasmina felt fear crawl like a trickle of ice water down her supple spine. She lifted herself on her elbows and stared apprehensively at the stranger. Who are you? she demanded. Her voice sounded brittle and inadequate. I am the master of Yimsha. The tone was rich and resonant, like the mellow tones of a temple bell. Why did you bring me here? she demanded. Were you not seeking me? If you are one of the black seers, yes, she answered recklessly, believing that he could read her thoughts anyway. He laughed softly, and chills crawled up and down her spine again. You would turn the wild children of the hills against the seers of Yimsha? He smiled. I have read it in your mind, princess, your weak human mind, filled with petty dreams of hate and revenge. You slew my brother! A rising tide of anger was vying with her fear. Her hands were clenched, her lithe body rigid. Why did you persecute him? He never harmed you. The priests say the seers are above meddling in human affairs. Why did you destroy the king of Vendia? How can an ordinary human understand the motives of a seer? Returned the master calmly. My acolytes in the temples of Turan, who are the priests behind the priests of Tarim, urged me to bestir myself in behalf of Yezdegerd. For reasons of my own, I complied. How can I explain my mystic reasons to your puny intellect? You could not understand. I understand this, that my brother died. Tears of grief and rage shook in her voice. She rose upon her knees and stared at him with wide, blazing eyes, as supple and dangerous in that moment as a she-panther. As Yezdegerd desired, agreed the master calmly. For a while it was my whim to further his ambitions. Is Yezdegerd your vassal? Yasmina tried to keep the timbre of her voice unaltered. She had felt her knee pressing something hard and symmetrical under a fold of velvet. Suddenly she shifted her position, moving her hand under the fold. Is the dog that licks up the offal in the temple yard the vassal of the god? returned the master. He did not seem to notice the actions she sought to dissemble. Concealed by the velvet, her fingers closed on what she knew was the golden hilt of a dagger. She bent her head to hide the light of triumph in her eyes. I am weary of Yezdegerd. 
said the master. I have turned to other amusements. Ah! With a fierce cry, Yasmina sprang like a jungle cat, stabbing murderously. Then she stumbled and slid to the floor where she cowered, staring up at the man on the dais. He had not moved. His cryptic smile was unchanged. Tremblingly, she lifted her hand and stared at it with dilated eyes. There was no dagger in her fingers. They grasped a stalk of golden lotus, the crushed blossoms dropping on the bruised stem. She dropped it as if it had been a viper and scrambled away from the proximity of her tormentor. She returned to her own dais because that was at least more dignified for a queen than groveling on the floor at the feet of a sorcerer, and eyed him apprehensively, expecting reprisals. But the master made no move. All substance is one to him who holds the key of the cosmos, he said cryptically. To an adept, nothing is immutable. At will, steel blossoms bloom in unnamed gardens, or flower swords flash in the moonlight. You are a devil, she sobbed. Not I, he laughed. I was born on this planet long ago. Once I was a common man. Nor have I lost all human attributes in the numberless eons of my adept ship. A human steeped in the dark arts is greater than a devil. I am of human origin, but I rule demons. You have seen the lords of the Black Circle? It would blast your soul to hear from what far realm I summoned them, and from what doom I guard them with ensorcelled crystal and golden serpents. But only I can rule them. My foolish Kemsa thought to make himself great, poor fool, bursting material doors and hurtling himself and his mistress through the air from hill to hill. Yet if he had not been destroyed, his power might have grown to rival mine. He laughed again. And you, poor silly thing, plotting to send a hairy hill chief to storm Yimsha. It was a good jest that I myself could have designed, had it occurred to me that you should fall in his hands, and I read in your childish mind an intention to seduce by your feminine wiles to attempt your purpose anyway. But, for all your stupidity... You are a woman fair to look upon. It is my whim to keep you for my slave. The daughter of a thousand proud emperors gasped with shame and fury at the word. You dare not! His mocking laughter cut her like a whip across her naked shoulders. The king dares not trample a worm in the road, <laughs> little fool. Do you not realize that your royal pride is no more than a straw blown on the wind? I, who have known the kisses of the queens of hell, you have seen how I deal with a rebel. Cowed and awed, the girl crouched on the velvet-covered dais. The light grew dimmer and more phantom-like. The features of the master became shadowy. His voice 
took on a newer tone of command. I will never yield to you. Her voice trembled with fear, but it carried a ring of resolution. You will yield, he answered with horrible conviction. Fear and pain shall teach you. I will lash you with horror and agony to the last quivering ounce of your endurance until you become as melted wax to be bent and moulded in my hands as I desire. You shall know such discipline as no mortal woman ever knew until my slightest command is to you as the unalterable will of the gods. And first, to humble your pride, you shall travel back through the lost ages and view all the shapes that have been you. I yield la cosa. At these words the shadowy form swam before Yasmina's affrighted gaze. The roof of her hair prickled her scalp, and her tongue clove to her palate. Somewhere a gong sounded a deep, ominous note. The dragons on the tapestries glowed like blue fire, and then faded out. The master on his dais was but a shapeless shadow. The dim light gave way to soft, thick darkness, almost tangible, that pulsed with strange radiations. She could no longer see the master. She could see nothing. She had a strange sensation that the walls and ceiling had withdrawn immensely from her. Then, somewhere in the darkness, a glow began, like a firefly that rhythmically dimmed and quickened. It grew to a golden ball, and as it expanded, its light grew more intense, flaming whitely. It burst suddenly, showering the darkness with white sparks that did not illumine the shadows. But like an impression left in the gloom, a faint luminance remained and revealed a slender, dusky shaft shooting up from the shadowy floor. Under the girl's dilated gaze it spread, took shape, stems and broad leaves appeared, and great black poisonous blossoms that towered above her as she cringed against the velvet. A subtle perfume pervaded the atmosphere. It was the dread figure of the black lotus that had grown up as she watched, as it grows in the haunted forbidden jungles of Kitai. The broad leaves were murderous with evil life. The blossoms bent toward her like sentient things, nodding serpent-like on pliant stems. Etched against soft, impenetrable darkness, it loomed over her, gigantic, blackly visible in some mad way. Her brain reeled with the drugging scent, and she sought to crawl from the dais. Then she clung to it, as it seemed to be pitching at an impossible slant. She cried out with terror and clung to the velvet, but she felt her fingers ruthlessly torn away. There was a sensation as of all sanity and stability crumbling and vanishing. She was a quivering atom of sentiency driven through a black, roaring, icy void by a thundering wind that threatened to extinguish her feeble flicker of animate life like a candle blown out in a storm. Then there came a period of blind impulse and movement, where the atom that was she 
mingled and merged with myriad other atoms of spawning life in the yeasty morass of existence, molded by formulative forces, until she emerged again, a conscious individual, whirling down an endless spiral of lives. In a mist of terror, she relived all her former existences, recognized and was again all the bodies that had carried her ego throughout the changing ages. She bruised her feet again over the long, weary road of life that stretched behind her into the immemorial past. Back beyond the dimmest dawns of time, she crouched, shuddering, in primordial jungles, hunted by slavering beasts of prey. Skin-clad, she waded thigh-deep in rice swamps, battling with squawking waterfowl for the precious grains. She labored with the oxen to drag the pointed stick through the stubborn soil, and she crouched endlessly over looms in peasant huts. She saw walled cities burst into flame and fled screaming before the slayers. She reeled naked and bleeding over burning sands, dragged at the slaver's stirrup, and she knew the grip of hot, fierce hands on her writhing flesh, the shame and agony of brutal lust. She screamed under the bite of the lash and moaned on that rack. Mad with terror, she fought against the hands that forced her head inexorably down on the bloody block. She knew the agonies of childbirth and the bitterness of love betrayed. She suffered all the woes and wrongs and brutalities that man has inflicted on woman throughout the eons, and she endured all the spite and malice of women for woman. And like the flick of a fiery whip throughout was the consciousness she retained of her deviship. She was all the women she had ever been, yet in her, knowing she was Yasmina, this Consciousness was not lost in the throes of reincarnation. At one and the same time she was a naked slave-wench groveling under the whip and the proud Devi of Vendya. And she suffered not only as the slave-girl suffered, but as Yasmina, to whose pride the whip was like a white-hot brand. Life merged into life in flying chaos, each with its burden of woe and shame and agony, until she dimly heard her own voice screaming unbearably, like one long-drawn cry of suffering echoing down the ages. Then she awakened on the velvet-covered dais in the mystic room. In a ghostly gray light, she saw again the dais and the cryptic-robed figure seated upon it. The hooded head was bent, the high shoulders faintly etched against the uncertain dimness. She could make out no details clearly, but the hood, where the velvet cap had been, stirred a formless uneasiness in her. As she stared, there stole over her a nameless fear that froze her tongue to her palate, a feeling that it was not the master who sat so silently on that black dais. Then the figure moved, and rose upright, towering above her. It stooped over her, and the long arms in their wide black sleeves bent upon her. She fought against them in speechless fright, surprised by their lean hardness. The hooded head bent down toward her averted face, and she screamed, and screamed again in poignant fear and loathing, 
bony arms gripped her lithe body, and from that hood looked forth a countenance of death and decay, features like rotting parchment on a mouldering skull. She screamed again, and then, as those champing, grinning jaws bent toward her lips, she lost consciousness. Chapter 9 The Castle of the Wizard The sun had risen over the white Hamelian peaks. At the foot of a long slope a group of horsemen halted and stared upward. High above them a stone tower poised on the pitch of the mountainside. Beyond and above that gleamed the walls of a greater keep, near the line where the snow began that capped Yimsha's pinnacle. There was a touch of unreality about the whole, purple slopes pitching up to that fantastic castle, toy-like with distance, and above it the white glistening peak shouldering the cold blue. We'll leave the horses here, grunted Conan. The treacherous slope is safer for a man on foot. Besides, they're done. He swung down from the black stallion which stood with wide-braced legs and drooping head. They had pushed hard throughout the night, gnawing at scraps from saddlebags, and pausing only to give the horses the rests they had to have. That first tower is held by the acolytes of the Black Seers, said Conan, or so men say, watchdogs for their masters, lesser sorcerers. They won't sit sucking their thumbs as we climb this slope. Kerim Shah glanced up the mountain, then back the way they had come. They were already far up Yimsha's side, and a vast expanse of lesser peaks and crags spread out beneath them. Among these labyrinths, the Turanians sought in vain for a movement of color that would betray men. Evidently, the pursuing Afghulis had lost their chief's trail in the night. Let us go, then. They tied the weary horses in a clump of tamarisk, and without further comment, turned up the slope. There was no cover. It was a naked incline, strewn with boulders not big enough to conceal a man. But they did conceal something else. The party had not gone fifty steps when a snarling shape burst from behind a rock. It was one of the gaunt, savage dogs that infested the hill villages, and its eyes glared redly, its jaws dripped foam. Conan was leading, but it did not attack him. It dashed past him, and leaped at Kerim Shah. The Turanian leapt aside, and the great dog flung itself upon the Araxai behind him. The man yelled and threw up his arm, which was torn by the brute's fangs as it bore him backward, and the next instant half a dozen toolbars were hacking at the beast. Yet not until it was literally dismembered did the hideous creature cease its efforts to seize and rend its attackers. Kerim Shah bound up the wounded warrior's gashed arm, looked at him narrowly, and then turned away without a word. He rejoined Conan, and they renewed the climb in silence. Presently, Kerim Shah said, Strange to find the village dog in this place. There's no offal here, grunted Conan. Both turned their heads to glance back at the wounded warrior toiling after them among his companions. Sweat glistened on his dark face, and his lips were drawn back from his teeth in a grimace of pain. Then both looked again at the stone tower, squatting above them. 
a slumberous quiet lay over the uplands. The tower showed no sign of life, nor did the strange pyramidal structure beyond it. But the men who toiled upward went with the tenseness of men walking on the edge of a crater. Kerem Shah had unslung the powerful Turanian bow that killed at five hundred paces, and the Araxai looked to their own lighter and less lethal bows. But they were not within bowshot of the tower when something shot down out of the sky without warning. It passed so close to Conan that he felt the wind of rushing wings, but it was an Araxai who staggered and fell, blood jetting from a severed jugular. A hawk, with wings like burnished steel, shot up again, blood dripping from the scimitar beak, to reel against the sky as Kerem Shah's bowstring twanged. It dropped like a plummet, but no man saw where it struck the earth. Conan bent over the victim of the attack, but the man was already dead. No one spoke, useless to comment on the fact that never before had a hawk been known to swoop on a man. Red rage began to vie with fatalistic lethargy in the wild souls of the Araxai. Hairy fingers knocked arrows, and men glared vengefully at the tower, whose very silence mocked them. But the next attack came swiftly. They all saw it. A white puffball of smoke that tumbled over the tower rim and came drifting and rolling down the slope toward them. Others followed it. They seemed harmless, mere woolly globes of cloudy foam, but Conan stepped aside to avoid contact with the first. Behind him, one of the Araxai reached out and thrust his sword into the unstable mass. Instantly, a sharp report shook the mountainside. There was a burst of blinding flame, and then the puffball had vanished, and the two curious warrior remained only a heap of charred and blackened bones. The crisped hand still gripped the ivory sword-hilt, but the blade was gone, melted and destroyed by that awful heat. Yet men standing almost within reach of the victim had not suffered, except to be dazzled and half-blinded by the sudden flare. "'Steel touches it off,' grunted Conan. "'Look out! Here they come!' The slope above them was almost covered by the billowing spheres. Kerem Shah bent his bow and sent a shaft into the mass— and those touched by the arrow burst like bubbles in spurting flame. His men followed his example, and for the next few minutes it was as if a thunderstorm raged on the mountain slope, with bolts of lightning striking and bursting in showers of flame. When the barrage ceased, only a few arrows were left in the quivers of the archers. And they pushed on grimly, over soil charred and blackened, where the naked rock had in places been turned to lava, by the explosion of those diabolical bombs. Now they were almost within arrow flight of the silent tower, and they spread their line, nerves taut, ready for any horror that might descend upon them. On the tower appeared a single figure, lifting a ten-foot bronze horn. Its strident bellow roared out across the echoing slopes, like the blare of trumpets on Judgment Day, and it began to be fearfully answered. The ground trembled under the feet of the invaders, and rumblings and grindings welled up from the subterranean depths. The Araxai screamed, reeling like drunken men on the shuddering slope, and Conan, eyes glaring, charged recklessly up the incline, knife in hand, straight at the door that showed in the tower wall. 
Above him the great horn roared and bellowed in brutish mockery. And then Kerem Shah drew a shaft to his ear and loosed. Only a Turanian could have made that shot. The bellowing of the horn ceased suddenly, and a high, thin scream shrilled in its place. The green-robed figure on the tower staggered, clutching at the long shaft which quivered in its bosom, and then pitched across the parapet. The great horn tumbled upon the battlement and hung precariously, and another robed figure rushed to seize it, shrieking in horror. Again the Turanian bow twanged, and again it was answered by a death howl. The second acolyte, falling, struck the horn with his elbow and knocked it clattering over the parapet to shatter on the rocks far below. At such headlong speed had Conan covered the ground that before the clattering echoes of that fall had died away, he was hacking at the door. Warned by his savage instinct, he gave back suddenly as a tide of molten lead splashed down from above. But the next instant he was back again, attacking the panels with redoubled fury. He was galvanized by the fact that his enemies had resorted to earthly weapons. The sorcery of the acolytes was limited. Their necromantic resources might well be exhausted. Kerem Shah was hurrying up the slope, his hillmen behind him in a straggling crescent. They loosed as they ran, their arrows splintering against the walls or arching over the parapet. The heavy teak portal gave way beneath the Cimmerian's assault, and he peered inside, warily expecting anything. He was looking into a circular chamber from which a stair wound upward. On the opposite side of the chamber, a door gaped open, revealing the outer slope, and the backs of half a dozen green-robed figures in full retreat. Conan yelled, took a step into the tower, and then native caution jerked him back, just as a great block of stone fell crashing to the floor where his foot had been an instant before. Shouting to his followers, he raced around the tower. The acolytes had evacuated their first line of defense. As Conan rounded the tower, he saw their green robes twinkling up the mountain ahead of him. He gave chase, panting with earnest bloodlust, and behind him Kerem Shah and the Yeraksai came pelting, the latter yelling like wolves at the flight of their enemies, their fatalism momentarily submerged by temporary triumph. The tower stood on the lower edge of a narrow plateau, whose upward slant was barely perceptible. A few hundred yards away this plateau ended abruptly, in a chasm which had been invisible farther down the mountain. Into this chasm the acolytes apparently leaped without checking their speed. Their pursuers saw the green robes flutter and disappear over the edge. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The People of the Black Circle, Part 3 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music